You're listening to Ember Weekend. I'm Chase McCarthy. And I'm Jonathan Jackson. And we're here with Sam Selikov. How you doing, Sam? Good. How you guys doing? I'm doing great. great. <laughs> it's uh it's it's the weekend. We're actually recording on the weekend. This is uh this is it's been a little <laughs> while since we've recorded on the weekend. It's always confusing when we tell people about Ember Weekend and how we release on Mondays. It's uh, strange. And mostly record on like Fridays. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. So tell us a little about yourself. Uh, you work at TED as a front-end uh, developer. Tell us a little about yourself, about uh, maybe like your experience with, uh, with Ember and JavaScript. Yeah, totally. So I've been working at TED for about a year, and I kind of came into programming. I've only been programming for, I guess it's been about three, uh, a little over three years now. Before that, I was like, I studied economics and did a bunch of different things. And then I just kind of fell into it. There was some programming that I was doing at like a consulting job and I just fell in love. And so my first real programming language was JavaScript, which is kind of funny because especially in the Ember community, like a lot of people have come to Ember from Ruby or Rails or whatever. But for me, it's always kind of been what I've, what I've done most, most of. And as I've you know, the last couple of years, I've actually moved more towards like Ruby and Rails, just having to do full stack work. But yeah, mostly I've done JavaScript and um, kind of quickly moved along the line from, you know, vanilla JavaScript and just jQuery and Backbone and then kind of found Ember. Uh, I was living in Boston at the time and Dockyard was kickstarting the community there with their meetups. Obviously, they're huge contributors in the community. And yeah, I just started going to those meetups and learning from those guys and that's kind of how I started. And so I guess I've been using Ember for on and off for about two years now. So oh, wow. yeah, that's kind of how I got involved in the community. So that's a little OG. That's uh, that's pre Ember one, I want to say. <laughs> yeah, it was like, <laughs> I think I started going to the Boston meetups that summer. I guess it was, I think the one O release was that July or August or something like that. So I was, I was kind of just starting out at the time. Yeah. So it would have been right around then. That's really cool. I um I have always heard that uh, the best programmers are the ones who didn't necessarily start out in programming and transfer because they have itches to scratch. And that seems like that's where you're at. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it, it's funny. Still, a lot of it still feels like I'm kind of in the honeymoon phase just because there's so much I don't know, you know. And I think there's aspects that are great about not having a traditional background. I mean, and obviously there's still a ton I don't know and a ton I'm learning from people who have you know, 10 years of experience, like I wouldn't be able to learn if it weren't for these people. But it is very satisfying to have gotten into it just out of, you know, a personal desire. And I, I'm still very passionate about it. And it's still like my main hobby. And it's a lot of fun, you know, just like a lot of people in our field are super passionate about this. So it's, yeah. it's been an amazing uh, career transition for me. Very, very cool. Very cool. Okay, so Sam, could you tell us a little bit about how much um, Ted is using Ember and like kind of in what capacity it's using Ember right now? Yeah. So even though TED is a really popular organization and their content is like super popular all over the world, I think their tech team is really just coming into its own as like a more mature team. And so really in the last year or two, we've been trying to build out this front end portion of our engineering team. Traditionally, we, we kind of had, you know, originally it was one big PHP application, TED.com that is. And then we kind of started splitting it out into Rails applications. And now we've been hiring more front-end developers and kind of building out this part of our team. And so really in the last year, year and a half, so like one of the main engineers who knows Ember, Ryan Toronto, joined I think about two years ago. And he was the first one to start kind of pushing Ember, I think. And um, again, I've only been there for a year, but this is my understanding. And then I joined and I was kind of all, you know, 
drinking the ember kool-aid at that point <laughs> and so you know as i was doing and i was hired explicitly to do front-end work and so you know we have ted.com as our main public facing site but we actually have kind of a suite of internal tools that we maintain that's a lot of what the engineers spend their time on and that helps us with our events it helps us manage all the attendees the conferences themselves you know payments we have tools that help us get the video when we're recording the video at the conferences getting those files organized in like a a digital asset management system so our video team can edit them and then tools that help us ship those videos to you know netflix or itunes or the web or whatever so basically a lot of the engineers at ted are are working on this suite of tools and basically as we had more front-end resources we wanted them to be able to focus and just build and iterate on the front end while our back end team could keep the APIs going or whatever. And so as we've grown like this, this is kind of the trajectory we've gone on where more and more of our front ends are in Ember and then our back ends become the Rails apps become kind of data services, data only API layers. And yeah, this is kind of this is kind of what we've landed on recently. You know, we just hired a new front end engineer about four or five months ago and and she knew javascript but she didn't really know ember but i mean she picked it up really fast and so it seems like this is how it's going to be at least for now it's working out really well for us so are you guys running ember cli yep we use ember cli everywhere that was one of the big sales because you know going from our php application to multiple rails apps you know the conventions that rails brings basically let our develop we still have a small team we really only have I think 16 or 17 engineers and having the conventions that Rails provides lets those engineers kind of move in and out of the different apps, you know, and they can jump into an app that they're not familiar with and know how it's set up, know how the data is flowing through the app, even the directory structure, all these things are the same. And, you know, we had some front ends with some, some JavaScript apps or some JavaScript parts of our Rails apps that were, you know, more complicated, but there wasn't really any conventions around them. So for us, we wanted to be able to scale up our front end team the same way our back ends were scaling. And, you know, it's proven to work great. Again, even our our newer engineers just being able to jump into older, more complex Ember apps and knowing how the app's going to be structured, being able to serve and test it right away, know how to add new things to it. uh, The conventions are really huge for us. So have you been able to keep the versions of Ember like, you know, just bumped up right there to release? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think basically what our kind of guidelines are is every time you you go into an app, you know, if there's maybe if if a new release of Ember CLI just came out, if you have time, you could try it. If you're two behind or more, we try to definitely bump it up. But, you know, sometimes if the release just came out and you go upgrade it right away, you might run into bugs and stuff. So but no, overall, I mean, we're all I think all of our we have probably at this point, you know, seven, eight, nine different Ember apps. And um I think they're all on definitely Ember 111, 112, and Ember CLI, you know, 2.5, 2.6, 2.7, that kind of thing. Cool. That's really cool. Yeah, and it's been, and, and you know, it's it's kind of a strange process at first, but once you get used to it, you, you kind of know what to look for. Yeah, so we've been able to keep things up to date. Very cool. Yeah. You said you're kind of keeping them kind of bumped up uh, to close to, you know, like beta stuff. Are you planning on how to migrate to 2.0 and... I guess kind of dovetailing into that, are you also seeing performance gains going to 113, which is, you know, basically 2.0? Right. Don't have a lot of experience actually in 113. I have an app that has like a ton of nested components. Um, and sometimes when I change routes, it, it's actually still being developed and we haven't like we're just testing it internally now, but it'll be a public facing part of TED Ed, which is kind of one of Ted's 
child properties. And so I want to do some work on making sure it's fast. And so at one point when Glimmer was first kind of released and announced, I, j- I pulled it into my project. And then, you know, I wanted to see if it would impact all these nested components. And um, there was just some bugs and I just didn't have time to, to go through it. So I was like, I'll just wait, you know, until it's more stable. So I'm looking forward to doing that. But I, I, we don't really have a case where we've gone to 113 yet. I, I don't, I'm not sure if, if any of our apps uh, have Glimmer, Glimmer yet, just because we've been busy and people have been on vacation this summer and stuff. Right. Yeah. And then your other question was about... How are you going to prepare for 2.0 in the upcoming, oh, yeah. upcoming changes? So, you know, definitely we've been, as we've been keeping our apps, you know, modern, like we've been removing the old, you know, array controllers, object controllers. Those are some of the easiest things to change. And most of our apps are basically just trees of components now and then only using controllers at the top level. There are, I think there might be one older app that still uses controllers and needs and stuff that'll take some work. And then keeping Ember data updated. So I don't think it'll be too painful for us. And then also we're all really excited about JSON API just because we do have a lot of Rails APIs and we have, you know, we've been using active model serializers up until now, but there's always little areas where you kind of make ad hoc decisions about how to structure your data or when it comes to doing filtering and paginating and all these things, there's different ways to do it. And so as a whole team, our back end and our front end teams are really excited about JSON API and trying to plan how we'll start to incorporate that just so there's even more consistency across all of our apps. Really cool. Yeah. Uh, So what is your approach to testing uh, both personally and as a team at TED? Yeah, so there's definitely a big testing culture at TED. You know, I think Rails encourages and enables us a lot more than, you know, say Symfony did when they were working on the first version of the app. So it kind of became a big part of our culture, I think, over the last several years. And, you know, when we started building out and maturing our front end apps, we really felt a need for this. It's easier when you're kind of doing ad hoc JavaScript to just ignore the tests and focus on if you have it well-tested backend, you'll feel okay. But as our front ends got more and more complex, we really wanted to bring that same rigor to the testing of our JavaScript apps. You know, I think we went through a similar process that kind of a lot of people in the Ember community did in the last year or two, which was, so we had like the fixtures adapter, right? And that's kind of where you start. And so you throw some fixture data on there and then you realize, well, everyone's writing custom adapter and serializer layers for, let's say, Ember data. We, We use Ember data. So and then you realize the fixtures aren't testing that, and it's important to test that. And then so then you move to a point where you're basically starting with HTTP mocks, and you're writing a mocking layer so that at your testing level, you're making sure to test those adapters and serializers as well. And then, of course, something like using something like Pretender or MockJax, you start to set up in every project, it kind of looks the same. You set up this Pretender script, and you have some mock data that you use, and Maybe you want to use this in development as well. And we realized there was just, you know, we tried to start writing some functions and even an add-on to share some of the setup because there was just so much boilerplate, but it just seemed really hard to kind of maintain it, you know? And, and I think a lot of people, especially if, if you're, let's say if you're a consultancy and you're just, you're building a first version of an app and you're going to kind of hand it over to someone, you know, a pretender script probably makes a lot of sense because you want to test what you have, but you might not be changing those mocks a lot, or you might not be adding a bunch of new features. And so having a script like that, that gets five, six, 700 lines, like if it's just a one-time thing, maybe this is the best for the trade-offs that you're facing and this is okay. But for us, you know, we were 
wanting to build up a suite of these Ember apps that we were going to be maintaining for years. And it was important for us for, you know, one person to be able to come into another app and understand exactly how the testing was set up. And so that kind of led to some of our, you know, newer efforts around standardizing our testing. But um, yeah, that's the basics. We, we basically, we take it, we take it seriously and we're always looking for ways to make it easier to test. Very cool. Yeah. So how are you uh, handling deployments? I mean, do you uh, have some, have you rolled kind of your own solution or using some add-ons? Yeah. So for deploying uh, our apps, we, we were hugely inspired by Luke's talk. I guess it was two years ago now, a year and a half, two years ago at RailsConf when he did talk about lightning fast deploys. And so that whole strategy, we ended up rolling into a solution we call front end builds. And this is very specific to, you know, having a Rails backend right now because the backend piece of it is a Rails gem. But basically, the idea is directly from Luke's talk. So when it comes time to deploy, you know, a front end developer is working with um, her Ember app on her development machine. Um, or you could also configure, you know, Travis or whatever to do this. But she'll basically, we have an add-on that lets you run Ember Deploy. The assets are kind of compiled and you have static JavaScript, CSS, HTML. And we'll put those up on our S3 server. And then what this will do, the Ember add-on in conjunction with the Rails engine, the Ember add-on will basically send the index.html back to the Rails engine, which is installed on the API server. And so at that point, the API server will take that index.html, which is pointing to those new assets on S3 via the fingerprinted you know, links and script tags. It'll basically stringify it and put it in a database. And then when you visit the app, when you actually load, want to load the app on, in the browser, then the engine also takes care of saying, okay, looking up what's the path and then finding the app in right. the gets database. Right, the la- gets the latest and then you just go fetch the latest string. Exactly. So, so, can you, so you can do simple rollbacks and things. Exactly. So we have so front end builds. Um, you can you can look this up. This is Ted Comp front end builds is the is the Rails gem, and then um, Ember CLI front end builds is the Ember piece. But yeah, there's this whole admin u- user interface. So when you first install it, it's a Rails engine. So you mount it at like slash admin or front end admin or something. That lets you create a front end app, and then it, once you start deploying to it, you know it uses you, you add your SSH key, and that's how you use to deploy. And then you can click on the app, and then view a list of builds. And so you can promote builds, you can view builds before they're live. And this has been great, especially in the TED-Ed Lesson Creator app I've been working on because we've gone through a bunch of different prototypes. And to just be able to check out a new branch of my Ember app and change the UI and push it and then be able to send a link to our product people and you can have both of them there. You can reference old versions. Uh, It's really a great workflow. So that's what we've been using. And we have a lot of ideas and plans for how to improve this even further because Ultimately, there's no real reason your API server should be the one doing this. I mean, it makes it convenient, but it also means there's a one-time setup where you have to redeploy your API server. If I want a new app and I want to pull data from an existing API uh, server, then why do I necessarily have to go and tell that new app, okay, I have a new front end, right? So this last piece that's, I mean, much better than it used to be is still kind of a step. So we have some ideas in the future. Uh, I talked to Trek about this a bit at EmberConf this year, and he said at Groupon they do something where I think almost either every single front-end app they serve or maybe every couple has a node-backed deploy server. And this is kind of the idea that we have as well, just one more piece in between where you have the node server that's responsible for storing the stringified index and is responsible for 
you know, storing the new build information. And it also acts as a proxy to the API. So at that point, you could create a new front-end app, configure the node server, say, you know, where's the proxy going to, which API server is it going to, and then you wouldn't have to redeploy the API server at all. So at that point, a front-end engineer could spin up a new front-end, configure a new proxy, and then be off to the races without ever, you know, without needing anybody else, which would be ideal. Right, because in, in this way, you'd be able to have permissions for just one deployment server, where I think the way you'd have for all. Exactly. Like we, we, the permissions, we still have separate permissions using like the AWS IAM keys. We have separate deploy permissions. And so ultimately, if there was a security breach, it would, it would be, you could remove that key right away. Hmm. But this is, this, I mean, this is even, right, like you said, this is even better. So this yeah. is just one step better. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a this is a question that uh, I've gotten surprising answers from large companies in the past. How like are you using other uh, front end frameworks uh, other than Ember? Uh, no, we're not actually. Just because our our front end team right now is really you know we have one person who works mostly on TED.com, which doesn't use Ember. There's some complicated JavaScript there, but it's really focused on performance on a single page load. So most people visit a single TED talk on TED.com and we'll have some JavaScript widgets there, you know, sprinkled in the rest of the server render page. And so Ember doesn't make a lot of sense for that. But in terms of our kind of long lived stateful, lots of dynamic interactivity apps, uh, the internal suite of tools, basically. Yeah, those are at this point, most of them, a lot of them are, are Ember apps. And if they're not, they're still just Rails apps, basically server rendered. And so yeah, we, we've experimented a bit with React for some of this, the more of like the sprinkled JavaScript functionality types, but we just haven't had enough time and resources to really dive into it. So That's actually surprising. I was expecting you to say, yeah, we have like tons of stuff. It's actually kind of cool to say like, oh yeah, like we're like, we're trying to push Ember and make that like the, the way forward. And it makes a lot of sense when you start talking about trying to onboard new people and the oh, yeah. vividness of the, of the apps. Yeah, exactly. And again, like we just don't, we don't have a ton of resources. Like we're not a huge engineering company, you know, so we have to, we have constraints and those constraints force us to really be selective and say, okay, you know, we're going to hire a new person, this person, we want this person to be productive as soon as possible. If all of our apps are the same and they have this awesome community, you know, and they have guides and they have, um, we know it's not going to fall behind and stay modern. That's, I mean, those are huge wins for us. Yeah, I think that was the, the the motivation for a lot of people switching over to Rails uh, as well. So I think it's it's against the it's, it's again this like a convention over configuration kind of mentality that's kind of being shared amongst the Ember community. I I love the Ember community, it's so good. Yeah, definitely. Me too. So are you currently hiring? Uh, yeah, we are hiring. Yep, we're looking for actually we're looking for front end engineers, uh, back end engineers as well. So yeah, we're basically Rails and Ember. That's our stack right now. Like we're not dogmatic. If you have a if you have an idea for something to use that you think would suit something better, then we have a very open minded team. But if you're excited about you know working with Ember, working with um, Rails, helping us you know mature this kind of this kind of architecture where we have data services, we're trying to share as much data as possible throughout the organization because it's growing and we're doing a ton of stuff as well as having these rich client apps. Uh, if that kind of thing excites you, definitely reach out to me. Awesome. Yeah. So I mentioned you had done a lot of work to get to like stub out your backend APIs, and you're also the author of Ember CLI Mirage. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about this project? Yeah, definitely. So kind of uh, tailing off what we were discussing before, you know, this came about as a as a result of trying 
really hard for us to standardize the way we did front-end acceptance testing across our Ember apps. And so once we had, you know, four or five different apps with six, you know, 500 line, 400 line pretender scripts, you go into one and you, you know, typically what happens is this, you, you start off with hard coding these, the mocks for your routes so that you can write acceptance tests. Then you're like, wow, this thing's really messy. And so I'm going to create maybe a separate files for each of my mocks. So I'll have like a users.js or .json and then addresses.js or JSON. And then my mock server will just load these up. And then I'll have some function that, you know, in each acceptance test, I'll kind of reset these things. So that way you can override them at a test level as well. And so we would set this up and kind of copy and paste across apps, but it was always a little different. It's always a little confusing. And, uh, you know, sometimes you don't want to load those mocks at the beginning. You want just kind of like an empty, a clean slate for your acceptance test to see how things look without any data. And of course, if you change these mocks, uh, these, the mock files, you could break other tests because they're relying on them. So it's kind of some of the similar problems you run into with fixtures and rails. And uh, also just the, the kind of, you know, the organization of it wasn't consistent at all. So this kind of led me to basically Mirage was like, uh, started out as like a one or two day spike where I just created an add-on and I just wanted some conventions, basically. It was basically what we were already doing, except some standards and an add-on that would let us use this across all of our apps. I think the big insight that came from this first spike and from talking about my colleagues and us working was, you know, instead of just having these kind of mocks, static files that are always loaded up, why not have basically a concept of a database? Right. And you really kind of start to realize, well, we're mocking out a server. Why don't we use the concepts from server programming that are tried, tried and tested, you know, and they've proved it works so well. And the database concept is nice because you can load data quickly and you can, you know, basically perform CRUD operations on it. So this was kind of the, the first incarnation of Mirage. It was just a set of standards around getting a mock server running. It was like a few days of like hacking just to let us install it as an add-on and then have a single folder. It was actually used, used to be called Ember CLI Pretenderify. It wasn't even called Mirage. It's just basically that was the idea. It was some conventions around Pretender. A folder called Pretender in your app folder where you put the data mocks and you put your server definition. And then that way you knew. And every app that used this, you could just go in and I would know where the mocks were. If I needed to add or change them, I'd know where to go. Yeah, so that was the first version. And um, it kind of has evolved from there and people started using it. and. Yeah, that's kind of how it started. Yeah, it's cool. It's definitely useful. I mean, uh, I think I use it in uh, every app I start up now. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, we, we uh, with uh, Emberjax, we use it for, uh, we're, we're built, currently building a blog. So yeah, we're introducing people to it there. Yeah, it's such a good way to introduce people to uh, to Ember when you can basically say, don't worry about the back end, it's covered. And then, you know, like just say, hey, if you're really curious about it, if this is bugging you, you need to know, go look at Ember CLI Mirage and go follow the docs. That's what we're doing. It's uh, no, no, you know, muss or fuss trying to get, you know, a node server or Rails or Sinatra or right. something. Set up right, exactly. Stuff. And this has turned out to be, I mean, yeah, a lot of this stuff kind of was just serendipitous, but it turned out to be really useful for us for the reasons you just described. Um, you know, basically you get to that point in development where you want to see data and, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to put some, are you going to return some fake data in your application route or are you going to use fixtures or whatever? And this way, you know, it lets you not change your application code at all. And then, like you said, you don't have to worry about getting, you know, Ruby, making sure mm -hmm. Ruby's installed, the Rails installed and starting a new server and proxying and all these things. And so, yeah, we've had new engineers who are learning Ember 
for the first time who are JavaScript developers, but have never worked in the server, no Rails experience, right? But they can basically make the entire application and have a very good expectation that it's going to work without having to learn Rails. And so it's, you know, for productivity reasons, it's turned out to be great. Yeah. And also it, it's, it's funny because it started out as just a way to standardize our pretender mocking code. But now that it's, it's made it really easy to kind of start up a new app, it turns out there's actually already a concept for this process of building applications. And it's, there's this Martin Fowler article, I think I sent you guys called Consumer Driven Contracts. And someone pointed to me this after using Mirage and kind of noticing the similarities with this Ruby library called Pact. It's this whole ecosystem actually in Ruby where you kind of define the API contract as a pact, and then you can mock that pact out for your client. And then you can write an automated test that ensures your Ruby server, Rails server, enforces that pact. And so now it's interesting because when you start a new app and you use something like Mirage, you basically are able to iterate on the API that you need before writing your server at all. And what you're left with is a set of endpoints that you need, but those endpoints and the structure around them and the actual data that's returned, all of those requirements are driven unapologetically by the needs of the client. And so from the beginning, you're focused on the business reasons for making everything. And I think this is really interesting and this has affected the kind of how I look at development. One of the things when I started with Ember that I found really interesting was kind of talking about how Ember as a tool changes your conception of, of building interfaces because you're no longer driven by maybe uh, the, the schema of your data storage. Right. So I remember somebody giving a presentation when they were talking about Ember and talking about this and talking about when you make a new Rails app and you kind of scaffold out an entire resource and how simple it is, let's say like a post for a blog, and it creates a new route and an edit route and a delete route. And then you look at the UI that's generated and, you know, you have slash new and it's a form and slash edit is a form slash index and it's a list. And the person's point when talking about Ember was like, okay, this is great how productive this is, but you kind of see the database structure in the UI, mm -hmm. right? It's like our database has the notion of performing CRUD operations on resources. Now we've built a web app for our users and it looks like a series of CRUD operations on resources. And like, maybe this is not the best way or this is not how we should start thinking about our interfaces, you know? Mm -hmm. And instead think about it from the perspective of, you know, user stories and thinking about the user, what, what goals they're trying to accomplish. And so if you look at modern apps, I think like Trello or Gmail's inbox, right? These things don't break down into this clean set of basically forms and tables and index and create and read and update and destroy. Yeah, basically database operations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so for me, that was that was one of the things that really made me realize like how much this part of development is where I, I love the most, which is building interfaces that empathize with the actual user, the person who's actually going to be using your software. You're thinking about that person from the beginning. You're not right. saying, oh, I have a, a MySQL database with these four tables and like, let's make a web app. So I'm going to generate, you know, eight screens from these four tables. It's going to look like this. That's not how you approach it. You approach it thinking about the user that you're building a product for. So this is nice having something like Mirage, because when you get to that point, you still are able, you're, you're able to keep on thinking like this. You're still living and working in the client and you're saying, okay, I want to show this data here, but I also want to show this data here. So I'm going to need this data from the back end. So I'm just going to create this. I don't care what it looks like now. I don't care what the data structure is like in the back end. 
what my server looks like at all. I just know that I need this to satisfy my business need. And so this is something that I've really grown to like about this development workflow. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting way of uh, kind of thinking about that. And I, I think uh, it's borne out in some of my own experience with uh, clients coming in. You know, the early days of Rails, I think it was really easy sell to say, hey, we can get, we're so productive. This is so easy. Like, look at how much more productive we are than the Java shops that you're probably also looking at. And decreasingly, they're coming and asking for things that look like CRUD apps. And that's been true for like four years now. Right. Uh, because that's just not what people need in a day-to-day base. So I like I like this idea of thinking about it client first or customer or user first, um, rather than thinking about like the constraints of the system you're building in. It's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. So Mirage is becoming increasingly uh, more complicated, and you know this this add-on is getting you know larger and larger. Are, are you planning on um, you know breaking this out into uh, smaller smaller pieces and maybe reusing some of this because the uh, just the ORM part of this seems like it'd be completely useful. Uh, I mean, even all of Mirage could be useful even in like Angular. Yeah, definitely. That's a great question. Um, it's always been the goal that I mean, yeah. If you think about it. You know, the project's called Ember CLI Mirage, but Mirage itself actually has nothing to do with Ember the same way Pretender has nothing to do with Ember. It's all beyond that line of your app. Your Ember app kind of stops at a line, and from there back, it's related to the server, and that's kind of where Mirage picks up. So the goal has always been to keep it independent from Ember. You know, originally I started using like Ember.object just to make things easy, but it doesn't do that anymore. It's just all ES6, plain ES6 stuff. And I just haven't broken it out into a separate package just because of time. I want to make sure it's a good solution for the case that we know it's useful in before kind of making it, let's say, like Mirage JS, where you can just bring it in as a power package and instantiate the server and all this thing, all that kind of thing. So, yes, it is becoming more and more complex. So the the story is very similar when I, especially when Mirage was kind of just getting started. You know, I I, I try to do research like i was surprised that there wasn't a more robust solution out there when i started doing this one of the reasons why is because if you think about what we do as ember developers and our needs for this the mocking layer and the testing layer to write tests like you need something and you can either use something like the fixtures on the fixture adapter but you know again we kind of as a community i think we learned like this is not the best because it doesn't test your your data layer you can mock out things kind of ad hoc, or you can also use a real server, right? And then avoid this whole problem together of mocking. But there's, there's obviously costs involved with that as well. Uh, sometimes you don't own the server, you don't own the responses or the data, you don't have as much control, and it's just another moving part to your development, all these things. So I was surprised because if you think about it, as Ember developers, we have the same set of problems, I think, that you know, iOS developers have. And iOS developers have been making iPhone apps for, you know, eight years now. And so um, it seemed to me like there should be some way, like, I, I couldn't imagine someone, an iOS developer at, at Facebook, and when they put out, they're working on their on their app, like, what do they do? And I still don't really know the answer to this question all the time, it seems. But even, you know, professional iOS developers, what do they do when they're developing? Do they have a mock Facebook API server running on their computer? Do they... Do they hit a staging environment to get their data? And if so, how do they test, you know, um, like actions with side effects? Like, how does it actually work? I'm sure there's a way that Facebook has to onboard new front-end engineers, let them work on an iOS app, but also be, I mean, as part of that, you have to be able to test what the, you know, with real data or simulated data coming in and out. 
And again, how do you write acceptance tests against that? And so I kind of tried to find that answer to this, and it just seemed like I, I couldn't. A lot of people were just like, I don't think the testing culture is as big in iOS or you know, native development, and maybe that's the answer. Maybe it just doesn't exist. But it's, it, I was just kind of surprised. So when I started working on this, and you know, basically when I first used Pretender and made it Pretenderify just to make it a simple place where you store mocks, and then it's like, oh, now this is easy. And so people start asking like, oh, I'd really like to be able to test validations too, you know? Yeah. Like, what if my server returns an error? Like, I want to be able to write a test that makes sure that the error message shows. And then, you know, actually I have different, like, types of data layers. Like, we use JSON API or we use this and that. And also, like, I want to be able to create related resources. And I have to do that manually now, managing the IDs. You know, some of the same problems that you run into, again, with fixtures and rails or whatever. And so, like, first, I remember at the beginning, I was very... I was very against adding any complexity like this in Mirage. Like somebody asked about a validation thing on an issue and I was like, uh, like maybe you should rethink what you're doing here because, you know, the point is to be a very lightweight solution to let you write acceptance tests, uh, not to duplicate your server, right? Because you don't want to be like maintaining two servers and if they get out of sync, like what do you do? And of course now we're at a point where I'm working on like an ORM layer, uh, like basically mimicking active records like interface so that it'll make it easier and and the question is so like is this a good idea right and a lot of people when I, they first heard about it and i talked to them about it you know i don't want to write two serializer layers like i'm already writing one in my back end i don't want to write another one in mirage and i guess how it's happened or my stance on this now is basically just i've continued to run with the needs that have been presented as long as it continues to seem like a good idea like, ultimately, this could be a stepping stone to some other solution. But right now, my response is basically, well, what's the alternative, right? The alter- what's the alternative to, to doing this? And so some people say, well, you know, you just keep things simple. But when you try to keep your pretender scripts or your jQuery mockjack scripts simple, the thing is you end up writing serializers. Like, you end up writing all of these pieces. It's just you're doing it in kind of an ad hoc way that can't be shared and leveraged with the community. Totally. The goal of Mirage has always been that if the project ever becomes more complex, it's so that your testing, your actual application mocking code becomes less complex, right? Like the goal of the ORM is so that it makes it easier to create your your data and your tests so you don't have to manage the IDs yourself, let's say. It does make Mirage more complex, but ideally it makes your, your code simpler. And if we accomplish that, I think we achieve the goal. We could just um, uh, we could just sub out the word complex with robust, and yeah, then exactly. and then everyone's happy. It's no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, are you thinking about uh, maybe generating something like a packed file to to give to the server? Yeah. So this it's all about trade offs, right? And I do think the biggest trade off with doing something like mocking in general or using Mirage in particular, like this is not a problem that Mirage itself has to deal with. Uh, this is a general problem that you face whenever you mock anything is that basically as soon as you mock object A, you run the risk that your mock gets out of sync with the real object. Sandy Metz talks about this in um, her Pooter book on Ruby development. And at the end, she's talking about mocking objects for tests. And so sometimes in, in unit tests, say a unit test for object A, an object A in the actual code has a dependency on objects X, Y, and Z. And in your unit test for A, you probably don't want to actually instantiate X, Y, and Z just to get an A 
because then you're gonna to have to worry about, now the test has knowledge about instantiating X, Y, and Z, which may involve other dependencies, or in some case that might mean you have to bring in a container. This is not what you want for a unit test. You really just want A to make sure you get a valid A, and then you can start writing tests against A's methods. So what you end up doing is you create test doubles. You mock out X, Y, and Z in some way. And the way you do it is you mock it out in a way that the mock satisfies the interface of X, Y, and Z, not completely, but only in so much as A is concerned. And so let's say A takes an X and X needs to respond to, you know, dot greeting. So your mock would just be, let's say, a POJO with like a greeting function. That's a no-op. It doesn't do anything. So now you've mocked out X in your test for A. So you run your test and it passes. Now in the future, what can happen is you can change A's or X's interface. So now X is no longer dot greeting. Now it's X dot salutation. And what the problem you can run into is that your test, your unit test for A can still pass, but now your code's broken because it, you, the test is giving you a false positive. Mm -hmm. Right. So the solution here, as Sandy describes in her book, is you also, whenever you mock something, you write an interface test. This is, and this is why testing and like test-driven development is so good because fundamentally what's happening here is you're reusing your code and reusing your code forces it to be more modular and adhere to the principles of like object-oriented design better because it's going to be easier to change. And so when you reuse code, what you basically need is an interface test that says, okay, I have an X-like object here in my mock and it responds to dot greeting. So I'm going to have an interface that says all X-like objects respond to greeting. You include that module for your actual X mock and you also include it for the real X object. Now you have a test that says the actual X in my code has a greeting method and the mock. And so if you ever in the future change X to have dot salutation, now it will fail that interface test, right? Because X no longer responds to greeting. It has salutation. So what happens is you update the interface that says all X-like objects respond to salutation, then your unit test for A will fail. And that way you don't have passing tests with broken code. So the analogy here is the same for mocking your, your API. So when you mock out your API with Mirage or Pretender or anything, as soon as you mock it, just like as soon as you mock a test object or a, a business object for a test, you run the risk that those mocks fall out of sync with your actual server, right? That happens as soon as you mock it. And so, of course, we don't want people to have to just manually check this all the time. And, and again, like as I was kind of doing research for Mirage, as Mirage seemed like it was growing in complexity and it was like going to be a bigger part of, our, part of our development, I asked a lot of people, like, what do you do to solve this problem? Like, this seems like a real problem. Do you, is there any way to do this better than manually checking against your mocks? And, you know, most people use enough conventions that it's just not as huge of a deal, but it's still just an annoying part. You know, and there's some people, again, who avoid this whole problem by not even writing a mock server and just always using a real API to do this. But this seems to be like a vast minority of people because it's hard to do that, right? It's hard to get a real, your real server running true end-to-end -end acceptance tests with your Ember app. Like this is difficult. There's not an easy way to do this. Most people just don't. So it's, it's good that it solves that problem, but it's not good because it's difficult and there's no work on making it easier. And so I think with something like Pact, you can have a solution where there is some work to be done, but you can imagine it, it being easy where, you know, once you have a Mirage server, you basically have, you know, a definition of the Pact, right? That's essentially what it is. And you can imagine generating a file that's somehow programmatically consumable that says, 
given three contacts in my database. When I receive a GET request, here's the response. And that should be super simple to generate right now from Mirage. Mm -hmm. And there's even a, a specification for PACT, which is that Ruby ecosystem, which is you know one implementation of the notion of consumer-driven contracts. But we could take advantage of it because it already exists and there's already libraries for Rails and Ruby and all these other server frameworks. So you can imagine having Mirage generate a file that adheres to the pack specification, and then you'd basically be ready to, to verify that your server fulfills that contract. And to me, this is the, this is the best solution. So to me, I, I think mocking offers enough advantages that I prefer it to you know, using a real server. But it, this is definitely a real problem with the, this, this idea that they can fall out of sync. And so for me, this is the solution I want to see emerge, is that basically Mirage generate something like a packed file that tells the server developers exactly what their server needs to fulfill for this Ember app to function. This is what this Ember app expects. This is the server it expects. And if you write a server that fulfills this pack, then you can be confident your Ember app will work on top of it. So, so Mirage will be the client side packed file test runner, like your interface test. Uh, and then you'll have to write, so if it's Rails, you'll have to have some Rails runner that takes the same packed file, runs this against your API and says, yes, they both, they both work. Exactly. And, and you have, it's basically the, it basically ends up looking like request specs for a Rails API where you say, you know, if I have, you know, you have some, some setup for the server state looks given a consumer in my, a user in my database, when I receive a get request, then the response looks like this. You don't test that there's actually any effects in your, in your database, right? You don't actually test the business logic in your Rails code, that's the responsibility for other tests. This is really just that request and response. If I request something, then this is the, the format and the response. And then, so you're testing at the boundaries. And the nice thing here too, is that if you can make it, if you, if you can make this simple to test at the boundaries so that people actually do it, right? And it's not this complicated, crazy thing to set up. If you make it super simple so that something like Mirage can generate as a, as a build artifact, this packed file and then make it easy you know for a rails app to run against this packed file then you can imagine multi having multiple services right because we have multiple services at ted and many other companies do and you can just basically test at the boundaries and again this feels to me the right solution if you're always relying on testing complete end-to-end -end so that you have to have every piece of the chain up to run your acceptance test as you grow in the number of services, like this might be great for a single application that has, you know, one front end, one back end, but in an organization with lots of, lots of API services, this becomes more difficult. So if you have this nice way to just test at the boundaries, um, it seems to me the best solution. And it's fast too, because you're just, you're not booting up the entire application and going through the UI and all this. You're really just testing the boundaries. I was about to say that the you know, the biggest concern with end to end testing is is the speed at which you can like like it just takes too long. It, like I, I want to say a, a typical end to end test testing suite of a of a large Rails app with Ember at the front, uh, it's gonna take like 10, 15 minutes to run maybe. Yeah. On a on a CI box, it might be a little faster, but you know on your on your MacBook, it's gonna take ten minutes, and that's that's unbearably long. Yeah. That's why that's my that's why I'm so excited about seeing things like Ember CLI pop up. Uh, this solution is such a good solution for like actually testing like TDD style, yep. not uh, not this, you know, let me basically regression test. That's that's what ends up happening is, uh, you know, as soon as it gets to a certain length of time for a test suite to run, 
you're just only going to write regression tests. Exactly. And you're going to write fewer tests because it's hard, and uh, you you'll have confidence, quote unquote, but it's going to be so broad you're probably only going to test happy path yeah exactly so. and you're not going to write tests for errors on all the different ui components you build you're not going to write tests for things like a long server response time like what the ui is like if the server yep. takes a long time because that's like how, how would you i mean it's like really hard to do this and if you do this for all the pieces it's really hard so this is i think you're exactly right and this is the same principles that we find elsewhere in testing which is like let's just say you're running a normal Rails app, server rendered app, like the principle is your big acceptance tests, end to end feature tests or whatever are like few, right? Compared to the, the more granular tests and they're just happy paths. But then you go down and you're able to test at the individual layers and that's where you do all the permutations. So here it's the same idea where you could have some end to end tests, but if you have something like where you can test the boundary and then you're working with something like Mirage from Mirage up, then you can write tons of tests in your Ember app for all different kinds of service scenarios, error states, you know, how long it, it takes the response to get there. And then that boundary, if you have the pack, something like the pack file, and you can confirm that, then you have the same level of confidence, but now you have much more robust test suite and it's faster. Super fast. And that's my, I, I, I can't stress that enough. I know you, you've experienced pain. I've experienced pain. I, I know Chase is currently experiencing the pain on your project, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fast tests are like so big, so huge. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, I, and I'm cool. actually not, I mean, I have like a test suite that runs maybe three minutes and uh, that used to be like kind of acceptable. And then I've been working more and more with Ember where it's like my tests take 30 seconds to run and I'm like, why is this mm. taking so long? <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. And like, like you know, I'm still relatively new developer and, and I'm still learning like principles of good programming all the time. I find myself in Ember writing a lot of acceptance tests. And, you know, because we use, there's so many primitives in Ember that Ember gives us, like you end up not writing as, I think, as many unit tests as you would if you didn't have all of like the computed macros, right, that do a lot of this for you. Like you should basically assume that these things work and you have some tests for them, especially if they get complicated. And if you have complicated like computed properties, you'll write unit tests for them. But at the end of the day, we have so many primitives and so many add-ons now too, that I find myself feeling more confident in the the app that is going to work is if I, if I have acceptance tests running. And so for me, it's hugely valuable to have those acceptance tests be a core part of my development workflow and have them be fast. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think the, the acceptance tests, the value gained from writing a single acceptance test is just orders of magnitude more than a unit test because you, you're testing the boundaries of those objects right. in a smaller scale, not, not across, you know, your front end back end, but across uh, you, your foo controller and your foo route, right. you get, you get this whole full stack and that's, that's super valuable too. Definitely. So Mirage is uh, is kind of designed not necessarily with the the new standards of around JSON API in mind originally. Have you been transitioning to kind of like what what is the path forward for working with JSON API and especially with uh, Ember Data like one thirteen mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, it started off as something that was completely specific to our needs because I just you know that's how I start projects, making sure they're actually valuable. And mm-hmm. so it was totally coupled to AMS style responses where you have like the resource name in, as a key in the root of the JSON response. And this basically for the, you know, like the shorthand versions of the route handlers, like none of this was configurable. And as it kind of gained popularity, I realized like there was all of these dependencies that were throughout the code that were, you know, particular to the AMS style response. And so this coupled with 
you know, wanting to be able to create related resources with factories and wanting to make it easier to generate like development data into your database. All these things basically were like high couplings that I, I started to recognize as more and more people used it in different scenarios. And that's kind of what led me ultimately to try to build the ORM layer. And I think this is also the solution to this problem. So the ORM layer is actually merged, but it's really the point of it is to pave the way for things like a serializer layer. So I think the answer to your question is basically a serializer layer. And for that, we wanted to have models. It's very lightweight, but this way, when your route handler returns data, if it's a user model, you can look up the user serializer, as opposed to right now in Mirage, which is just, it's returning JSON. You know, it could be from your user's database table, or it could be from anything else. So you don't know. But if you have a model instance, now you know it goes to the model serializer. And so if you have, if you're really using something like JSON API, you can imagine a very simple serializer now that's probably even part of Mirage that says, okay, if the model is returned, find the type, put it under the type keyword, and then put the adders under data. And so that's kind of the, that's kind of the path forward. That's very close actually to landing. Um, and also being able to configure like if the root, you know, for AMS style, or a lot of people don't use AMS and Rails and they don't want the root keyword there. And so just being able to disable root like you would in AMS or um, other servers, like those options are basically all belong to the serializer. Like why, why, why recreate all this stuff? This, this, the solutions to this already exist in real server land, right? And, and the solution is basically to have your, what's essentially your controller method be responsible for getting the data and then a serializer layer responsible for manipulating it, the JSON. So that's basically the path that we're going to take. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a lot of work to be done on Mirage. So how can the community help you and uh, how, what are some ways they can contribute? Yeah, that would be great. I think I've, I have gotten like there has been a couple of people who have been really great in contributing to Mirage and it definitely wouldn't be where it is without them. In terms of like these actual the bigger architectural changes I've been thinking about some ways uh, and I'm not sure it's hard because a lot of this is is it's kind of intimidating to drop, jump into because now you have model schema, you know, uh, DB. But I mean, I mean, I wrote it all. It's not, and and I haven't been working. It's not like it's been a full time thing for me. So it's 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 not. It's pretty standard. It's pretty much what you would expect. So it might be good for me to make something like a contributing document to just explain the architecture. This is kind of how Ember CLI describes like plugins, and I think it's super useful. So I should do that. But if anyone's interested in helping out, I mean, I think now that the ORM stuff is merged in the model and schema, like the serializers won't be super complex after that because they're just kind of leverage all the, the the code from the from the schema. And same with factory relationships. Like if you want to create, you know, an event with 10 talks, like you'll just delegate all that work to the, the ORM layer, which is already done. But there's, I mean, if you can just look at the issues and people have all sorts of ideas for Mirage, like people want to do all sorts of crazy things. So, which is great. Like there's a lot of work to be done and I think it could be like even more powerful than it already is. So I saw there was some, uh, uh, there was an issue. Actually, there was a, there's a pull request on a uh, pretender, uh, to try to support multiple hosts. Do you have any plans on uh, supporting multiple hosts uh, in Mirage? Yeah, absolutely. This has been like one of the big things that's kind of been a hangout for people. So I don't know if there's any way we can all like like poke Mike North on like Slack or something, <laughs> or, you know, like the old Facebook, we could all just like, you've been poked by 500 Ember people who are <laughs> dying to get this in. Yeah. But yeah, he, I, I think this is really close. I think he worked with Stefan uh, to get as a spike to how to support this. And as soon as this lands in Pretender, this will be, I mean, it's just Mirage delegates the entire XHR intercepting yeah. piece to Pretender. So as soon as it lands in Pretender, it'll exist in Mirage and that'll be fantastic because then we can, you know, I'm working on an app that uses the YouTube API. And so just to be able to, to mock that out would be great. 
Yeah, I saw Trek's response to that was that uh, he he had he had envisioned a different kind of API, and uh, so I think maybe like he I mean he wants it to be pulled in obviously, but he's gonna he's got some plans for like making a host object. A host object, yeah, that's really cool. But at the same time, he had a he had an issue in there saying uh, he needed to update to ES6, um, mm. and so I think maybe like do adding all this complexity before having ES6 maybe mm-hmm. maybe a barrier. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, because I think Pretender is just right now is just. You just consume it as it's written. There's no compilation mm-hmm. in the project just because. Right, but I I, I submitted a PR yesterday uh, that converts it all to ES6 with uh, Testum. Oh, really? Yeah. So hopefully, oh, nice. hopefully uh, that might make it a little easier. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. That'll be fantastic to have have that. Some cross interview magic. Exactly. Synergy. Yeah, that wasn't a plug. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I was I was trying to say the whole time. I was like, Chase, are you trying to plug your own PR? <laughs> Is this a poke? Is this yeah, a subtle I, poke? I, I, Mike yeah. North. <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to track. poke track. Exactly. <laughs> no, so I that's think I cool. think that'll land soon, which will be nice. Oh, the other thing that's really cool, not related to what we've talked about so far, is WebSocket mocks. And someone has helped out with this. I'm blanking on his name right now. I see all I see is his, his GitHub avatar. You know, that's <laughs> how I know people. But he did a talk on this, and there's a PR for this, but it's not it's not quite done. But essentially, you know, in acceptance tests, how you do like server.create you'll be able to do something like server.enqueue event and like file add event and then with some data. And that way, like when you boot your app, it'll like connect to a mock WebSocket and then the WebSocket will emit an event. So I work on an app at TED that's all WebSockets. You know, it's basically at the conference, we bring like a big 50 terabyte box and hook up a bunch of network drives to it that our cameras record to. And it's just an interface for showing all the events as the cameras are recording the TED Talks. And it's hard to write tests for this, you know? I have kind of a, a WebSocket event handler service in the app, which is like the boundary. And so I can fill that with data and assert on my interface. But it's kind of the same problem because I'm not actually testing at the browser level right. that this service is actually converting the data. And I've had bugs because of it. Mm-hmm. And so the ideal would be to mock out that at the, at the browser level. And so I think this would be really cool if this ended up in Mirage as well. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. All right, so shifting gears just a little bit, you know, I think one of the big draws to the Ember to, to Ember in general is its community. And uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, you were uh, you were involved in the Boston uh, Ember meetup, and I think now you're in New York, right? I'm going to be in like September first. I'm moving. To New uh, York. September first. Yeah. Cool. So, what do you think the strengths of the Ember community are? Um, what could we all do better? What uh, What are the things we're doing right? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I think ultimately the reason I'm an Ember developer is, is because of the community for sure. Brian Carterell and the rest of the people at Dockyard were like super welcoming, super inviting. I was like complete newbie, you know, encouraged me to like give a talk and had office hours. And, you know, it, it was nice after having worked with some like spaghetti code at my first, basically my first programming job to have those people who are, I think, representative of the community at large just say, you know, oh, look, actually, this this is like a good way to do this, right? If I have a problem, like, I think a lot of people in the Ember community believe like there should be basically like one best way to, to do something. Of course, there's always trade-offs and there's always edge cases. But in general, we're, we all like to try to find the single best way to do something just so we're not wasting time reinventing the wheel. Yeah, and that really drew me towards, just philosophically towards the people in the community. And then also, they're just fun and nice and, you know, got to become friends with them and so that was huge for me. I mean, I really do think that's the reason why I'm still an Ember developer. And then, you know, getting to go to New York, the New York scene is also awesome. And, you know, Luke runs the meetup there and all those people have a great time as well. So I, I think there's a lot of really good aspects. Those are some of the strong aspects for me of the Ember community. 
you know, as a new developer, like it has seemed sometimes like it's easy for us to take for granted some of the things we know. And even even me, like now having worked more intensely over the last year with Ember, like every day, you know, the first year with my Ember was basically my free time because my first job I was doing like Pearl stuff. And so I was only able to do it at night. But now working with Ember kind of every day for a year, like some of the stuff seems so much more easy and intuitive to me. And then, you know, if I teach Ember to someone who doesn't know it and they get hung up on things, even I find myself like, oh, wait, yeah, right. This is not super obvious. Like this is something we have to make sure that to explain because to a new person, it's just not obvious like we think it is. So I think I'd always like to emphasize new developers and bring them onto Ember and like easier ways to do this. And I think this is something people are excited about, but something right now where, you know, part of our community is lacking, whether it's documentation guides, like especially with the flux with all the run up to Ember 2.0. I'd like to see, I'd like to see that reputation that Ember has as being hard to learn, like become less and less true, you know, and less of a, of a barrier for people. Because I think personally, having gone through my path over the last three years of learning web development, basically starting out with vanilla HTML, JavaScript, CSS, and then going up and spending a lot of time doing like random jQuery and backbone stuff, you know, and not really, not really taking time to learn architecture until getting to Ember and realizing this is kind of crucial to these heavy JavaScript apps. Like now I think Ember, especially where it's at, is like one of the best tools for brand new developers learning web development because like it's the perfect blend of hiding enough complexity and letting you build something that you're satisfied with, but also kind of as you're learning, growing with you and you can dive down into it and deepen your knowledge as you're still being productive. I think it's like the best way to learn and it's it's just so much fun. So I'd really like to see the community continue to focus on making it as, as easy as possible for new developers. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. So Sam, uh, it, uh, it's become a tradition for us to uh, get our guests to name our episode. What, uh, what do you have in mind for this episode? Hmm. That's tough. And on the spot <laughs> like that, no prep. No, no prep. Yeah. So normally, uh, yeah, this has been a pretty crazy week. Normally, we 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 like try to give you some lead time. <laughs> yeah, we completely okay. forgot. It's okay. <laughs> but we totally forgot. So how about uh, embers? Anyways. Embers for the newbies. That is awesome. That is such a good title. <laughs> Consumer driven weekend. I like that. Consumer driven weekend. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Go we'll on. go with the newbies though. I like that better. I, I think that's uh, I think that's Consumer much more driven like... Ember newbies. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right, Sam, uh, I think that's pretty much all the time we have. Uh, it's been great having you on the show. I really appreciate the time you took. Uh, this, these, I, I'm, I'm, my mind is still roiling. Uh, I'm going to have to come up with more questions to pester you on, <laughs> on Slack with. Um, but thanks for coming out. Um, yeah. Totally. Yeah, I'm sure I'm going to be reading all about pack files and services tonight. Yeah. Pack, well, when you send us the initial information for pack files and, uh, um, and what is consumer it? driven uh, contracts, consumer driven contracts, uh, like it was so dense. That paper was so dense. Like it was, uh, is like, Oh my God, I have so much. I, I do not know or not understand. So. It is, it is super dense. And I was just reading it. I mean, I, you know, I had to go through it and very slowly, but I was just kind of like, it was also like an epiphany, like, Oh wow, this is actually a real thing. And it makes a lot of sense to me. And it lines up with how my thinking has evolved on this like so well. So it got me excited. Um, yeah, it's been great. Thanks so much for having Very me. Cool. It was great talking to you guys. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Cool. And that's all for this every weekend. I'm Chase McCarthy. I'm Jonathan Jackson. And I'm Sam Selikoff. And we'll see you next weekend. Uh, okay.
Okay, so just a side note, uh, when I refer to Ted, is it just Ted? Yeah, or do can, I say like... You can say Ted, you can say Ted, Ted conferences, um, or you can say like the Ted Talks people. <laughs> I mean, most people, <laughs> most people when you just say Ted, it might be like, oh, the movie with the bear? <laughs> <laughs>